check. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to tonight's show. I forgot to turn on my audio gear as I was going live. I think I think everything is copacetic. It looks that way. Let's see. Let's see what happens. Yeah, baby. All right, we got the good. We got the good mic going. I got my my old setup is back a little bit. You understand, I, I shot a feature film and everything went into disarray. This whole basement is a, just a, a nightmare. It's garbage nightmare. I have to clean everything up and get everything back to where it was. I was. This is my location sound recording equipment. So I use it to broadcast to you as well as do location sound recording. And what's up, Vampiro? How you doing, buddy? And tonight, I'm very excited about tonight's show. But at the same time, I'll be honest with you, I don't really feel like going live right now. I uh, I had it all scheduled to go, and I was thinking, eh, I'm not going to do it. And do you ever know me to not do a show? I If I say I'm going to do a show, I got to try my best to do the show. The only time I've ever stopped is when there was a tornado or when there was flooding. <laughs> True story. You could see it right here. On this channel, I'm literally mid-interview and water hits the back of my feet. That was about a year ago. And uh, what's up? What's up, John of Doom? How you doing? Vampiro's doing good. Hey, oh, let's go. That's the right attitude to have. Maybe I'll feel better after I uh, do, do that. I'm sort of annoyed with so many different things right now. It is what it is. Um. In two or no, sorry, on the 26th, 26th, the second part of our Erie Vaughn interview is going up. Yeah, that's right. You like the you like the stash, huh? I'm not gonna say what kind of stash it is because I don't want this video to get flagged, but yeah, baby. No, you know, I always do the uh I do the goat. I do the goatee, and then what happens is the goatee gets too long and too unwieldy, and it starts to look really goofy. Not that this uh, <laughs> fat Skeet Ulrich circa 1997 here. No, um, it starts to get too unwieldy and goofy, and I have to, like, shave it. And normally I just shave it all, and I start all over again. But I thought, you know, why don't you keep the uh, the the cum catcher and the the stash, and just try and just just wear it, just rock it for a few days? Wife hates it. She's telling me to shave every chance every chance she gets. She's like, "You got to shave that thing." Uh, you might have seen I'm starting to do the YouTube shorts. I'm just getting into it. I'm experimenting. Wow, I I can't get over how many views some of those YouTube shorts can get. It's really really quite awesome so i'm gonna keep on doing that i think and as as i said we got that second Erie vaughn interview coming so keep your eyes peeled that's for patreons and youtube members want to thank all of the patreons and youtube members for their support their continued support i don't thank you guys enough I try to make it worth your while. I try to put as much content on there as possible. I'm always cooking things up. I'm cooking up more stuff. I, I mean, I did just write, direct, shoot, and edit a brand new feature-length narrative film, which you can watch for uh, you know for fun and for free right on those channels right now. You don't have to wait. It's there, available in 4K. Um, 
just trying to create as much value as possible. I do the best I can. So there's that. And tonight's show, uh, well, let's dive into it because this is the type of show where I could see us being here for a really long time. If I don't, I hope the video is not like, like choppy. It's been choppy the last few broadcasts, which really annoys me. And again, just resources and, you know, you know how that stuff sort of works and whatnot. Hold on. I just want to post in the chat. Here you go. Join the Patreon. Buy a coffee. You can see my little, my little thing right there. I'm going to pin that to the top. Okay. There it is. Ah. Nah. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Shall we? Let's. Let's dive on into this clam dig. Let's see what's going on. Hey, Dan from Minnesota, what's going on? Sending us free stickers is always a plus. Hey, uh, that is harder. That is that is easier said than done, but um, definitely within the realm of possibility. I have some addresses already. If you want stickers, if you want stickers, send me an email to videobusinessmedia.com. Sorry. Videobusinessmedia at gmail.com. Send me an email and I will try to throw some stickers in the mail. Stickers are easier to send than other things. It's that way, way money, way and cost money. My, uh, yeah, long story. Long story. Don't want to get into it, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I think stickers, stickers are just like a stamp, right? Yeah, that, that should be, should be easy to do. Um, <clears throat> Ravner says, I remember the flood. <laughs> Damn, I want a dream flavored cola. When are you going to interview John Christ? Hey, if don't don't ask because you may just receive. That's all I'm going to say about that. That's all I'm going to say about that. Dream cola was kind of a letdown, actually. Wednesday says, from us, I made my girlfriend watch her misfits video. I've converted her to a fiend. Thanks from thanks from Dave and Jen. Jen, thanks for watching the videos. Dave, thanks for forcing her to watch. And, or making her uh, i'm glad you're enjoying them that's good that is good <laughs> and okay enough of that enough of the chit chat let's go to the article shall we we're talking today we're doing a ramones show i don't shout out to rue i know rue rue loves the ramones john of doom loves the ramones too but he's more of a he's more of a kiss guy he, he's a kiss a kiss fiend i don't know what you would call him kiss heads kiss armies Kiss, kiss military, kiss, what do you call, kiss soldiers, right? Kiss soldiers in the kiss army. That's what it would be. I would imagine something like that. Um, This is okay. So this is actually an interview with Tommy Ramone, who is no longer with us. He passed away, I believe in 2014. He was the last of the original Ramones to pass away. All, all of our Cretans are now in heaven. Sad to say. That's how that's how it works. Marky Ramone and to a lesser extent, Richie and CJ are all carrying the Ramones torch. They're the last ones. And of course, Monty Melnick, who we had on the channel and uh, Mickey Lee, uh, Joey's brother, and I guess Linda Ramone by extension. They're all carrying the Ramones name, but the actual Ramones, the Ramones, or at least the original Ramones, the ones that started all are not around. And of the ones who started it all, who 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 started the whole thing i think that there's not enough emphasis on tommy ramone you know johnny was the uh joey was the heart right 
Didi was the songwriter. Johnny was the taskmaster, the regimented, you know, sergeant leading the leading the 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 whatever you want to call it, leading them into the thing. And Tom, but but Tommy Ramone is always sort of left in the dust. You know, he leaves. He was only around from seventy four to 77 as a band member and he was still around after that you know he helped them he produced and recorded uh road to ruin i don't know if he had a hand in end end of the century but he came back for ramones too tough to die which is by many considered to be the last truly great ramones album by that time marky had left the band and see uh richie had filled them a slot and they say richie was uh, or at least Richie had made the set, according to the documentary, Richie made the set even faster. He made he made them go even faster. But apparently the fastest the Ramones ever got was was with Marky for Live Loco. Live Loco is the fastest the Ramones ever get. And that was what was interesting, much in the way that the Misfits sort of dived into hardcore with Earth AD. The Ramones also you know, this band, this long lived punk band, especially by punk standards, sort of transcended their era by competing with bands, competing with those hardcore bands and those bands that were maybe doing it louder and faster, or at least, you know, attempting to be faster. They were, they were just matching them with speed and the Ramones were, there were a few faster bands than the Ramones, especially Towards the end, when you hear them, uh, Adios Amigos, when you listen to them play, when they go into Durango 95, into Lobotomy, Teenage Lobotomy, and they're just, they're traveling at breakneck speed. You can almost imagine them, you know, there's like this, they're like this triangle formation, this flying duck formation, uh, speeding faster than the speed of light, just, just breakneck speed, how fast they would play. But it all started with the original four and Tommy, Tommy, I guess, you know, as we said, we said what everybody's, you know, place was in the band. Tommy was the secret weapon. He was the secret weapon, Ramon. Now, Tommy wasn't always a drummer. Tommy started off, he was a guitar player. I think he played a bunch of instruments, but he started off as a guitar player. He was a guitar player playing the drums. Oh, there's Rue. We're a happy family. <laughs> We're a happy family. We're a happy family. We're a happy family. Me, mom, and daddy sitting here in Queens, eating refried beans. Da 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 da. Gulping down Thorazines. A Friday, da 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 da. Friday never ends. Da 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 da. Daddy likes man. Sorry. <laughs> I love that song. Tommy was the only one with the ability to formulate a sentence, kind of. I mean, a little bit. You know, Joe was like, hey, man, I just want you around. And um, and Johnny was like, well, you know, we um it's just rock and roll. That's what it is. We just uh we just play rock and roll. That's that's all. It's not, I don't know what this punk is punk stuff is. We just, you know, we're just doing 50s rock and roll. And then Dee Dee was like, there was nothing better to do except sniff glue. So that's what we did. We sniffed glue. And uh, I, I don't have an impression for Tommy. There's no Tommy impression. And Marky, of course, is uh, I'm Marky Ramon, world, <laughs> world famous of the world famous Ramones. 
By my marinara sauce, Marky Ramones, Brooklyn's finest, drumsticks not included. <laughs> Do you want a bagel chip? <laughs> my Marky Ramone is kind of like Forrest Gump a little bit. Sorry, Marky. So, so if you want to see me interview Marky Ramone, join the Patreon and you can see my interview with Marky Ramone. It's it's short but uh sweet. <laughs> Okay, so, um, so, but before Marky joined the band, you had time. I'm, I'm just like going around in circles. I'm not diving into the meat of this thing. The point is, the point is, freaking, um, uh, Tommy being a guitar player turned drummer is what gave the Ramones something very distinct and unique. So, here's the thing the Ramones are. The Ramones are a band of 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 brilliance through simplicity. It is in the simplicity of and minimalist nature of what they do, this sort of three chord simplistic, you know, versions of of Beach Boys doing Beach Boys songs and Ronettes, Ronettes and Beach Boys, but faster and louder. Um, that 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 give them this uh, unique edge, especially in. 1974 right and um and that kind of starts with the you know they say that the drummer the drummer is the what's it called the heartbeat right isn't the drummer the heartbeat of the band like your band is like the drummer is the backbone of the sound right they're holding the beat they're holding they're keeping it in the pocket and so the architect of that is tommy ramone and he's sort of because he's not he's he brings a unique and original style to the band's sound because he's not a traditional drummer he's invented his own way of playing drums but that's not to say he's not musical because he's is a musician who's a songwriting musician who plays guitar so he has that musicality and he's basically forging his own technique that becomes the platform for the Ramon sound. And that's what makes Tommy Ramon, in my opinion, that's what makes Tommy Ramon the secret weapon of the Ramones. And then Marky Ramon takes that style and runs with it. And now Marky, I mean, you look at Marky, you look at Marky Ramon's Blitzkrieg, just watch Marky play. I mean, that dude, the strength. And that was the thing. Marky was an accomplished drummer, you know, when the when the torch was passed him. Marky, you know, he does all sorts of drumming. He was, he, Marky was a tenured drummer, man. He played for that band Dust. He played in uh, Jane Count, Wayne County, Jane County's band, the Backstreet Boys. And he played with Richard Hell and the Voidoids. He, he knew jazz. He knew all sorts of stuff. And then all of a sudden, here he is confronted with this super simple Ramones music. And all he's got to do is... You know what I'm saying? He's just got a, it's all that flick of the wrist, right? And if you watch Marky play, much like Bill Stevenson, who I always am in awe of, Marky is not, he's not a power, he's not power hitting with his arms. It's not about his arm strength. Everything is the forearms and the wrists. It's all in the wrists, how he's playing. And all of that came from Tommy, who, again, 
doesn't know how to play drums traditionally. So, cause they had Joey was the drummer. Joey, Joey didn't even have a drum stool. He was sitting on the, he was sitting on a, a drum, a drum chair without a dr drum, drum seat and just, you know, <laughs> just doing his thing, you know? Um, oh my God. I needed that. This LaCroix, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Key lime LaCroix. There's there's regular LaCroix lime, like lime LaCroix, but you need the key in the key lime LaCroix. That's what's up. That's the that's the magic sauce right there. Uh, Michael says, I've seen Marky warm up in 2003 in North Carolina with the Misfits. He's a human metronome. He sure is, man. He sure friggin' is. Um, it's quite incredible. It's incredible to watch, man. Just that that flick of that wrist, man. Just kung fu action. In any case, so this is so. So the thing was, besides besides being the drummer, besides being a you know uh, his other place in the Ramones band is that he was also kind of like the he was the manager, right? He was sort of like the manager. He was the mouthpiece for a while. At the very beginning of the band, he was the one that kind of led the interviews, right? And as someone else said, he was the one that out of all of them could form probably the most coherent sentences, you know, and an interesting, and he was a, he was just a smart, he was a smart, sensible guy who, you know, helped make the Ramones what they were. And he also helped with the songwriting process. You know, there's, so there's, ah, God, someone once divvied up who wrote what in the original Ramones, and it's so interesting. Like, originally, Blitzkrieg Bop was called Animal Bop, I believe, and I believe Tommy helped to write that. It's all over the place. The person who wrote the least in the Ramones was Johnny, who didn't really write anything. Uh, he did write some stuff on Too Tough to Die, or at least he's credited with writing songs with Dee Dee. That was when the, the band really formed, had a nice like cohesion again there was kind of like too tough to die was kind of like a comeback album for them a little bit and tommy tommy was back tommy was producing so it's an album that features all four original ramones in that in that kind of way we got a, a donation on ko-fi someone bought a coffee and i can't it doesn't show me who it was so i'm just gonna say thank you to whoever supported on co coffee if you want to shout yourself or or please um say who you are in the comments so i can see and personally thank you or i'll just thank you later when i'll check in my email who it was but i just want to say thank you for the support it's much appreciated truly thank you um what's up john bullet how are you um we're talking ramones tonight okay let's get back to it so so and then the other thing the other thing i wanted to say is so tommy is also kind of producing those remotes okay that was you john that was you who 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 bought a coffee thank you sir i tip my hat to you man thank you thank you oh i see it what's up it's me brother sorry i didn't see that i just saw what's up thank you truly john thank you for the coffee um so he also kind of like he produced rocket to russia leave home ramon self-titled all that was you know involved tommy so we're going to dive into it. This is by Roman Sokol. It's called, it's from Tape Op. And it's from issue number 46, March, April of 2005. So it's almost 20 years old, this interview. But, you know, we so seldomly hear from Tommy Ramone in the Ramone stories. So this will be interesting because this is 
Tommy Ramone, 20 years after the, what is it, 20? No, sorry, 30. 31 years after the Ramones, this is Tommy Ramone talking. And Tommy would go on. He had a project called Uncle Monk. I don't know much about it. I think it involved mandolins. There's Tommy right there with, uh, I believe that's Ed Stasium, I think. And I don't know what era that is, but I think that's post Ramones, right? Because he's not wearing any leather. He's a small guy. Another thing to note, Tommy, much like Tommy, much like Joey, they make up the Jewish half of the Ramones. And not only that, Tommy's parents were Holocaust survivors. So you could imagine with some of the song material that Tommy and Joey, to a lesser extent, are playing. Although I don't know how affected and touched Joey was by all of that stuff. <laughs> hey, Mike, try to get Mike says, try to get Monty on. Hey, Mike, what if I told you that there's already like an hour and a half interview with Monty on this channel right now? And as soon as we're done here, you can go or if you want to watch right now, you can go and watch it. Yes, that's right. Monty was on Pizza Punk. He's on the channel already. So go check it out. Had a great time talking with him, talking Ramones with him. Okay, let's get into it. The New York City based Ramones arguably began and boosted the punk rock movement back in the mid 1970s. They took the world by storm and inspired a multitude of musicians to form bands with a similar spirit, letting loose musically with maximum energy. They are the true spirit of punk rock. I can't pronounce Tom's real last name. It's Tom Erdeli, Erdeli. I think it's like Hungarian or something a.k.a. Tommy Ramone, is the band's original drummer and only surviving member of the original lineup. Right, because this is 2005, so everybody else, everybody else is gone now, right? Jo uh, Johnny, Joey passed away in 2001, Dee in 2002, and Johnny in 2004. And, you know, we know that Dee died because of drugs, but I always wondered, and I even asked Monty this, Sort of. I, I didn't quite push it there because Monty knew these guys. These to me, these are living legends, but to Monty, these were his friends. So I was I was trying to be gentle in my question asking when I asked this. I, I sort of softballed it to him, but just this idea of did I wonder if their touring regiment is what part partially, you know, stressed their bodies, you know, Joey and I don't know. Did Joey, Joey did have cancer. Joey did have, right. Joey did have cancer. Of course he had cancer. Um, it was, it was falling. That really took him out. Joey and Johnny both had cancer. They both died within two years, two or three years of each other. And I always wondered if that was because, and they were the two guys who remained in the band for 22 years and 2,185 shows or 2,200 something shows. Right. So, I mean, they, they played every single Ramon show and traveled the world countless times. I wonder what, what kind of, havoc that wreaked on their bodies that caused them to both expire at their ages. And I'm sure there's a, you know, listen, there's a multitude of factors that lead to that stuff, but I just always thought it was interesting that they left so close to one another. Who knows, man, who knows, but Tommy is the only one left. He's the only surviving member. Tommy is the legendary foundation of the band because without this hung, yeah, he was Hungarian. Hungarian-born musical mastermind, the band in many ways would not exist. While he and original members Joey, Johnny, and Dee Dee drove the band on stage and freed the souls of the audience at a time when music was over uh, overtly polished and sometimes contrived, 
Uh, Tommy also acted as a creative seer to the band behind the recording studio console. He produced and or co-produced their legendary records in the early phase of the band's career. In the late 1970s, he decided to step down as their drummer to keep from being distracted and ravaged by touring and the like, opting to focus on and hone his recording and producing skills. Besides the Ramones, Tommy contributed sonic wares to bands including The Replacements, Red Cross, Talking Heads, Collider, and The Continentals. That's crazy, man. What a body of work. You know, um, what a body of work. Ravner says, travel will take it out of you. A life of travel and work will F you up. Yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, you like the stash, man. Stash is life. It'll be gone. It'll be gone soon enough. <clears throat> All right, let's keep going. So this is like a straight interview. Uh, one thing I wanted to get the one thing that's not being mentioned here. Maybe that's because it's like an interview for Tommy. I mean, Tommy was Tommy was bullied and chided by the band, by his band members. And he kind of was like he kind of like had a breakdown. He kind of like lost it. He, he wanted out. He absolutely wanted out, or at least he wanted to be relegated to the studio. It wasn't just to hone his skills. It was he just couldn't he couldn't take it, man. And and you know, who could blame him when you have someone like, you know, Johnny Ramone, who was a very racist and somewhat anti-Semitic um Republican a-hole, you know, as much of a legendary guitar slinger as he is. Let's not let's not beat around the bush here about who and what Tommy Ramone doesn't mean I don't love I'm Johnny Ramone doesn't mean I don't love the music any less. But, you know, we, we always love everybody loves to pick and choose. You know what I mean? Ghost Sam says, wow, superb surprise. I've seen the Ramones with Tommy two times in Brussels. Wow, dude, that is awesome. He says, I remember the gig in the AB with UK subs opening all apologies for my poor English. Your English is perfect, Go Sam, and that is awesome. Uh, if you have any other things you'd like to add about seeing any other memories you have about seeing the Ramones sonically or otherwise. Um, yeah, that, that would be interesting. Uh, JW is asking, do you think Tommy left the Ramones over racism clown face? That's not what I said at all. I just said that being in a band with Johnny Ramone, who is was all of those things, must have not been easy and must have taken its toll. And perhaps that some of the comments that Johnny was known to make to the other band members Maybe all of it eventually got to Tommy, and that's part of the reason why he wanted out. So you could try and put those words into my mouth, but obviously, obviously, you know, I mean, he had to be okay with it on some level because he's performing songs like Today or Love, Tomorrow the World, despite the fact that his parents are Holocaust survivors. So I don't know what to tell you, JW. Uh, you can clown face all you want. I read somewhere that you were an assistant at some studio in New York City in the late 1960s. That's right. And he was, I believe that was also with, with Monty. What was the studio like and what did you learn from all that? This is a studio-based interview. So he's talking about his producing career more than just being in the in in the uh the Ramones. I remember seeing Ravner said, I remember seeing end of the century 
when it came out, Alamo Draft House 1.0. Wow, down in uh, down in Texas, 2004. Johnny Ramone left a bad taste in my mouth. Hmm. Um. He says in night. So Tommy says in 1968, I met a friend of mine on the subway. His name was Jack Malkin, and he told me that he was an engineer at a recording studio. I said, "Wow, can I come down and see the place?" And he was nice enough to invite me down. I went there and I was taken aback. It was the most amazing thing I had ever seen. The place was called Dick Charles Studios and it was located in the United Artists Building on 7th Avenue and 49th Street. It was a small studio where many important clients made their demos, major record and publishing companies. It was one of the few small studios that had an eight-track recorder at the time. It had, okay, so another thing to note, eight-track recording in 1968 was a big deal. The Beatles just a year and a half earlier recorded you know one of their magnum opuses what some would consider their magnum opus sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band was done on a four track recorder like do you have any idea how insane that is to record think about all the stuff that's on sergeant pepper that was done on four tracks every time they needed more tracks they would bounce all the tracks down to one track to free up all the other tracks right isn't that crazy Think about how crazy that is. And you lose a generation every time you do a bounce. Then imagine just having four more tracks to do whatever you need to do. So eight tracks, that's huge. And I believe by 1969, the Beatles were recording on 16 tracks. I think Abbey Road was done on 16 tracks. Hmm. Michael says, just imagine being in the van, driving across the country. I'm surprised he lasted that long. Yeah, dude, a Republican, a junkie. And a guy with schizophrenia and OCD, holy s, holy ish, yeah, dude, not not easy, man. I don't I don't think it was easy at all. I mean, Johnny would say stuff like, you know, he was calling like Joey and Monty like rabbis or something. I don't know. He was saying all sorts of junk, man, like nasty nasty stuff. Um, not not fit for YouTube consumption. Um, I love when people find out that like people that they love were like flawed or racist or something they're like, oh, oh my god, oh <laughs> like they just lose their mind. It's like, dude, people, man, people are people. It's just it is what it is, you know. Uh major uh it had apex recorders, an eight-track, a four-track, a stereo, and two full-track mono machines. At the time, clients were still doing mono bounces from machine to machine to save money, sound on sound. They had a Newman tube stereo console, which was amazing. It had 10 or 12 input channels and two out. Since it was Newman, everything was first class, which meant fancy knobs, meters, and faders. The EQ section was primitive by modern standards, but it had as many of the, it had one as many of the consoles of the area of the era did not. Ugh. Sorry, the EQ section was primitive by modern standards, but it had one as many of the consoles of the era did not. Uh, no pan pots; they they had not been invented yet. Left, right, or center. If you wanted to pan, you had to use two channel strips. They had one Teletronics limiter compressor and one Pultec equalizer. Tannoy monitors were placed on the sides of the small control room, so it was like listening to headphones. They used KLH bookshelves for near-field mixing. God, 
you know, I don't understand half of this technical jargon, but I always find I find recording, especially analog recording, I find it so fascinating, dude. It's so so fascinating. Oh, Marky and Johnny did have a feud, but Joey had a feud, but they that was just that was just the least of it, man. That was one one of many feuds. You can listen to that on the Howard Stern show, which is on YouTube. Uh, they used the studio room was not too big, maybe 15 by 25 feet, but it was well stocked with a Hammond organ, a piano, a tack piano, drums, and lots of percussion. It was a great place to start, and that is where I started. And then the interviewer says, and then you went to the record plant. And then Tommy says, the original record plant, part of the staff of the Dick Charles, went on to create the record plant. So I had that connection. I was in the right place at the right time and was lucky enough to get a job there. While they had, while there, I had the opportunity to work with Jimi Hendrix, Mountain, John McLaughlin, McLaughlin, Herbie Hancock, and various other artists of the era. Era, lots of jazz, R and B, rock. So Tommy Ramone worked with Jimi Hendrix. That is crazy. Who would have thought that? Not. Not I, not I at all. This uh, interviewer says the studio was quite advanced for the time, wasn't it? It was one of the first 16 track studios. They had an Ampex video deck converted to 16 tracks of audio. That is what the original 16 tracks were. While I was there for, oh, that's another thing. That's another interesting thing. So videotape and audio tape kind of are the same thing a little bit. Like for instance, I believe on video tape, you have four tracks, two of them, one of them is video and three of them are audio. I think that's how it works, but you can kind of use that space however you want. As far as I know, it's just, it's kind of just the principle of magnetic tape. I believe, I believe that is such a, uh, uh, hail Mary off the top of my dome remembrance from all the way back to when I, you know, when I was in school learning about this stuff. Um, we also had Scully tr 12 tracks, four tracks, stereo and mono machines. The consoles were by data mix. It was a simple console by modern standards, but they did have pan pots and a full EQ section. We monitored through six large Tannoy speakers, each powered by its own Macintosh 75 watt, mono tube amp they wanted to impress the clients both the control room and the studio uh and both the studio were quite large the place was a converted parking garage for reverb we used emt plates at both the record plant and dick charles this was 1969 and things were starting to get a little more complex it was the first time that multi-track studios were really starting to happen it was a changeover from the old school union engineer system to independent studios and freelance engineers and producers. Wow. It's really cool. So how so how was it working with and being in the presence of Jimi Hendrix? Oh my God. I had no idea that Tommy Ramone was in the presence and worked with Jimi Hendrix. That's crazy. Working with Hendrix was something else. I was still quite young and he was at the height of his fame. To me, it was like working with the gods. We would set up two full stacks of marshals as if he were playing live. He wanted to be able to get a lot of sustain and feedback. Since the studio was a large room, we had plenty of space to build the sound. We'd mic the amps with Newman U87s, which were new at the time. 
For the bass guitar, we used Ampex, the precursor to the SVT. I don't recall the model, but they were large. This was the band of gypsies with Buddy Miles on the drums. In those days, we did not use too many mics on the drums. There was this theory that if you used too many, there would be phase problems. We used an electro voice dynamic for the kick, a Shure or an AKG dynamic for the snare, and one U8 seven for the overhead that was it when they say the overhead i guess to capture the overhead sound just whatever is happening overhead boom 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 bing bong bing bong boom that was it for mountain we use sun amps for both guitar and bass i think we just started to experiment with di's for bass this was to be the mountain climbing album this would have been henrix tracks like room full of mirrors and such Available on first rays of the new Rising Sun posthumous 1997 release. How was it to work with Hendrix as a person? What was his work ethic like? Aaron says, I met Ricky Hendrix when I was three and I don't remember any of it. Who's Ricky Hendrix? Is that like Jimmy Hendrix's brother or something? Uh, or his father, maybe? Hendrix was great. So, okay, continue. Sorry. Um, Hendrix was great to work with. He was friendly and playful when he was in a good mood. He would do many takes of his guitar parts. He was a perfectionist and a brilliant musician. These amazing things would flow out of him that never actually ended up on any tape. He was always improvising and creating. We would keep very late hours. Sessions would start at 8 or 9 p.m. and go through the night till the dawn hours. Sometimes he would seem insecure. He once asked me if I thought Leslie West of Mountain was better than he was. For a second, I thought he was kidding, but then I realized it was a serious question. I said, of course not. I was a big fan of Leslie West. He was competitive and wanted the best. And, you know, I, too, always want the best. And that's why I enjoy Riot stickers for all of my sticker needs. Yes, Riot stickers is the official channel of the from uh sorry the official sponsor of the from his channel and man look at these stickers vinyl stickers that can handle all kinds of weather look at the beautiful print job on these bad boys you can't you cannot go wrong with riotstickers.com there's a link in the description we love riot stickers and they make all things go for us we just we really appreciate them and so we're going to play our little one minute video spiel for you that is for right speaker right stickers.com sorry i'm just having trouble verbally speaking as of late today ready and
And we're back with our regularly scheduled program. I'm going to turn on the fan. Starting to get a little hot here. A little hot in her. Uh, nothing like a cold fan on the legs to make you feel brisk. Yeah, that's nice. Okay. And then you converge with another legend, Tony Baggiovi, who you ended up working with off and on throughout the years. I learned a lot from my experience there. He was one of my mentors. He was a brilliant young man from New Jersey who in his teens got himself some expensive Macintosh amps and audio equipment and started to DJ at his local high school dances. That's how he got into audio. And from there, he went on to engineer at a Jersey recording studio. His big thing was that he went on a pilgrimage to Motown Studios in Detroit. He hung around there for a while and learned some of their secrets and techniques. He then came back east and got a job at the record plant where he was known as Tony Motown Baggiovi. I don't know how to say that name. So I met him there and we got along well and I learned a lot from him. Interviewer asked, you produced, co-produced the first few Ramones records. <coughs> I guess this is a picture of Richie Ramone behind the council. So I'm going to guess that's too tough to die era. So this would be 1984. After the record plant, I got a job at a film company. My new interest was avant-garde films. Soon after I got involved with the record rehearsal studio called Performance Studios, my friend and business partner, Monty Melnick, who we had on the show and later would become the tour manager and AKA also known as like the fifth Ramon, uh, who is to become the Ramones tour manager. And I had a great place that attracted many of New York's best bands. That was really the beginning of everything. I believe that's the place where the Ramones first played gigs at that performance studio spot. But that was like the, the beginning of everything. And that's circa 1972, 1973, something like that. Um, he said, I, we had a great place that attracted many of New York's best bands. It was there that I got involved with the Ramones. What happened was that I saw a group called the New York Dolls. And the idea hit me that what was going to be important in the coming days was not so much musical virtuosity, which was everywhere, but a new kind of thing where ideas mattered. We wanted to bring back the essence of primal rock and roll. And that you hear that word primal over and over again, when you're trying to talk about punk, you know what I'm saying? Um, you got, I mean, that is like when, when Iggy pop is talking about wanting to do something with the Stooges, he uses the same vernacular. He says, I wanted to bring the primitive blues to white teenagers. That's that's what it is, man. And it's the same thing here. It's this idea of the primal, the primitive, the original rock that has got so unwieldy by the end of the 60s that now we're going to see a return to form. And that's what Tommy is harnessing by seeing the New York dolls. If you really want to look at the flow chart, you could see, I mean, the MC five and the velvet underground are there too, but you see the stooges to the New York dolls and the Ramones. And from there it all explodes outward. Right. Um, but it makes sense, man. So he wants to bring back the essence of primal rock and roll. I was trying to figure out how to do that, and I thought of friends I grew up with in my hometown of Forest Hills, Queens. I thought that those guys would make a great group. They could play as good as the dolls, and they were very colorful people. And so I got in touch with them and eventually got them to put a band together, which was the Ramones. And he wasn't going to be in the band. It was not, it was not a part of 
the band. Um, Wicked Ramon says you got to do more Ramones streams. LOL. I will, man. I just need, you know, I need stuff like this to help me. I'm going to sneeze in two seconds. I feel it coming. I'm just letting you all know. I'm going to tear away from this microphone and sneeze. Too Tough to Die was named after Johnny. Huh. Here it comes. Do we have another one? Do we have another one? Do we have another one? Thanks. I don't know if this is aimed at me, but thank you, Ben. Maybe maybe Ben is just starting the stream and he saw that I was kind of cranky at the beginning. I feel a little bit better now, but let's keep going. Um, so he's going to put a band together, which is the Ramones, but he's going to be in the band yet. I was originally their manager, but I later ended up also playing the drums as we had trouble finding anyone capable of picking up the style of drumming that we needed. Fortunately, the guys in the Ramones turned out to be not only colorful, but also very talented. They were coming up with these fabulous original songs. We soon had something really powerful going. When we first went to the studio to cut our demo, because there is a demo before that self-titled record, there is a five or six song demo. Uh, We were coming up with some unique recording ideas for the times. We decided to go backwards a bit. We decided to use hard left and right ping pong stereo effects like we heard on the old Beatles records. And that is true in your left ear. I think it's your left ear is bass and in your right ear is guitar. And I hate that's the one thing I can't stand about the the first album, man. I don't know why they chose to do that. That They did, you know. Um Wicked Ramon says, ask me any Ramon stuff. I probably know as much about them as you do the Misfits. Good. Because I, you know, I know some stuff about the Ramones, but man, there's plenty of blanks for me. Currently, Wicked Ramon says, currently putting together a master archive of all of Johnny's gear and details about their equipment. That's cool. Um, That's awesome. So where were we? That they're talented. He ended up playing the drums. We had trouble fighting. Right. Right, right, blah, 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 going back. Right, we're going to use hard left and right ping pong stereo effects like we heard on the old Beatles records. We wanted to make a record that sounded different. We ended up transferring those experiments onto our first album. So weird. Just how many many Ramones records did you help to make? Uh, Tommy says, I worked as a producer on six Ramones albums. And... The guy asks, the interviewer asks, do you get any royalties from producing the Ramones uh, Ramones records? And Tommy says, yes, I do get royalties for them. Now, what is interesting, okay, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not exact. Maybe that's partially true. There was something, there was some sort of skiff with Tommy where he was not getting credit. I think it had to do with uh, Road to Ruin where he was not, there was something about, maybe it was the songwriting. Oh, maybe he was getting royalties, but he wasn't getting like publishing for songs that he helped to write on Road to Ruin. Maybe Wicked Ramon will know the answer to that. Something like that. Something like that. I'm not sure. Um, if you don't, I, I, it's not that I don't love the original album. Of course I love it. I just, I, I hate that it, that it separates the sound. Like that. If you don't like the OG album, the 40th anniversary mixes are mono and sound really great. I didn't know that. I'll check those out. I do. I do like me a good mono mix. They've done it for the first four albums so far, and they sound great to the modern listener. Cool. I will. De- I will definitely look into that. 
Robert Zander from Cheek Tricks stole Johnny's Rickenbacker guitar. I don't think Johnny had a Rickenbacker. I think he had something called a Mostre. Mostre. He was like he popularized that style of guitar, which recently one of them. Uh, which he used on 15 Ramones albums and 1,985 Ramones shows uh, was was auctioned for almost $1 million. Danny Ray, late time Ramones producer and song author, um, had that guitar and didn't didn't change the strings from the final Ramones show. Still, still like that. Although I believe the final Ramones show apparently is not actually the final Ramones show. There is, they played, apparently, I guess they played a secret show after that final show. <coughs> Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's the case. So the interviewer asked Tommy, how did you fit into the band dynamic? And Tommy says, I fit into the band as the creative director, songwriter, arranger, and producer, sort of a jack of all trades. So, I mean, Tommy is the secret weapon, man. He's like really helping them to forge and, you know, they would carry on with it after Tommy left, but Tommy established that paradigm within the band, all that stuff. I was also involved with the creation of the image and the aesthetics of the band, as well as publicity and promotion. I was acting as producer, manager, and musician. That's amazing, dude. That is amazing. There was a co-producer for the first Ramones album, Craig Leon. Craig Leon was the A&R rep at Sire Records. He was the one who signed us and was a budding producer himself. We were happy to have him produce as we were grateful for him signing us. He was a huge fan, so we felt comfortable working with him. He did watch the clock as our budget was quite low. So it sounds like maybe sonically and creatively Tommy was there producing. And then Craig is kind of like, you know, uh, more on the money, you know, um, what you want to call it? Facilitating side of things. Wicked is really dropping the, the knowledge bombs in the comments. They say the Ramones originally decided to list songwriting credits as just remote. Yes, this I did know. 25% to everybody, and there were no bones about it, but that did change. That did change after Tommy left the band a little bit. Even if even if Pleasant Dreams era Joey is pushing for everyone to get individual songwriting credits, you can always tell who wrote a song. If it's about love and girls, it's Joey. And if it's about mental health, it's always Dee Dee. That's how you know the difference. But I do believe, I do believe that there was, I, I'm going to have to dig it up now. There was some contention. There was absolutely some contention over something songwriting on Road to Ruin with Tommy. I, it's coming back to me now. Something happened. I forgot what it was. But yes, you're right. They're, they did have, a, they had an equal split. And in 1990, I think it was when they got, when it was either Blitzkrieg Bop, I think it was for Hey Ho, Let's Go at Yankee Stadium. They were paid $100,000 for the usage of that song or one of those. Yeah, I think it was Blitzkrieg Bop. And they each, they was just split evenly, 25, 25, 25, 25, which, you know, I mean, listen, that keeps bands from having resentments and 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 fighting and, and fights and, 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 and killing each other over stuff. You know, it's, it's good. It's important. It's important. Which is important. Um, however, they each got paid for their original com contributions to their publishing company, Taco Tunes. I love that. 
dude hell wicked thank you for all these additional little tidbits of, of information i didn't know any of this stuff um wait so but uh wicked question so does that did that happen but did that happen that early or that was later with the taco tunes like early on they weren't getting paid for their own contributions it was that it was that split that we're talking about Cor correct correct all right let's keep going let us keep going produce great for signing us did watch the clock budget i also noticed that there's a lot of harmonized vocals going on with it sounding somewhat like the beach boys again as i've said here multiple times on the channel and as i think i said a little bit earlier at the end of the day maybe not in totality of their sound but part of their sound was literally it's the ramones the ramones are just trying to write beach boy songs and look no further than say rockaway beach or sheena is a punk rocker for the proof of that um it's just right there wicked says the guys wrote some of the road to ruin songs with tommy no one really knows who exactly wrote several of the songs since they still listed as just being written by the roads right okay but then tommy tommy got cut out when he left the band tommy was cut out in some way shape or form from that i'm telling you look again uh you you, you clearly seem to know way more about the roads than me i'm not gonna i'm not sitting here trying to argue split hairs with you but i'm i'm almost positive i'm gonna find, i'm gonna look for it i'm gonna look for it. there's something i'm not gonna waste my time now i don't want to keep we're gonna be here all night with this friggin' thing i want to just get through this um <clears throat> So he says, I also noticed there's a lot of harmonizing vocals going on with it, sounding somewhat like the Beach Boys. We would use all kinds of harmonies in the studios. Yes, the Beach Boys were one of our influences, especially for harmonies. We used people who were available in the studio, pr uh, preferably if they could sing for background vocals. Ed Stasium, uh, who I guess did an interview with Tape Op in number 98, the engineer had a good high voice and we would use him often we also sang a little bit how did you meet ed and can you shed some thoughts into his input and how essential he was to the records ed stasium i hope i'm pronouncing that right and i met when we did leave home tony bob i can't pronounce any of these names tony who worked with us on the album brought him in we got along great and he was an excellent engineer very enthusiastic and a hard worker he was also a good musician and a good guitar player and we and was useful for some overdubs probably with some some of johnny's overdubs i would imagine right i would explain what 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 we needed either showing him or humming it to him and he would execute a great version of it as i said before i learned a lot from tony he knew about the records how they should be made he felt that the record should sound like a record uh that it should not sound real or live but that that it should have a texture added to it something unreal added to it this was the difference between a record and a recording he loved using percussion effects he was sort of old school with ancient wisdom and knowledge that we were able to recycle Ed was very up to date. He was into the latest techniques of recording technology. The three of us made a very good team. And yourself? I contributed with my creativity, insights, and original ideas. My biggest contribution was my taste, which is all important as to what works and what does not. Good point. Very good point. Um, 
Were budgets ever an issue with the Ramones records? Did more money in a way make improvements that's in quotes sonically with the playing and did you notice any improvements with your own playing skills during your time with the band as far as budgets for production we progressed from very low under ten thousand dollars for the first album to low about thirty thousand to sixty thousand for others we never had big budgets for albums i was involved with we always had to work under constrained circumstances. Of course, on the higher budgeted albums, we could spend a little bit more time getting what we wanted. What kind of miking situations went on? Any tips you can offer to punk and rock recording enthusiasts? To record the Ramones, we used Marshall amps for the guitar and Ampeg SVTs for the bass. We miked the Marshalls with SM57S five sevens up close and U eight sevens about six feet away. I'm going to sneeze again for the bass. We mic'd with EVRE twenties and some, and sometimes an SM five seven or SM 57. We also went direct and mixed the two. So what he means went direct. It means that they plugged right into the council. So they're micing amps in the room and getting the sound of the room. And then they're also plugging directly into the council. It's going to give you two different sounds. The Beatles used to do this. I think it's, it's something called like a it's split signal recording, something like that. Uh, again, not, not a, not a, I, I, I'm fascinated by this stuff, but I don't actually know very much about it for the drums. We use two very high overheads, U87, two lower overheads and hi-hat Sony Electrics, Tom Tom's Sennheiser's kick drum was an RE 20 and the snare was one SM 57 on top. Wow. It sounds like they're really, you know, when they, when they have, when they're doing two overheads and two lower overheads, it sounds like we're really trying to capture the, just the whole sound of the whole kit. Right. Although it seems that they mic'd individual, individual things as well. <laughs> I take it your skills on playing the drums had to speed up and definitely develop since you put yourself in those shoes as a necessity. My own playing improved from album to album. I had never played drums before in my life. I was a guitar player, so I had room to improve, and I did. And when you look, when you see like video of Tommy Ramone playing drums, it's like it is otherworldly, man. He's not he's hitting things differently. His his arms are slightly delayed, you know, in the same way that Ringo was a left handed guy playing a right handed kit. And that changed the sound, man. That slight delay that Ringo needed just to move his arm from the hi hat to the snare or however here, the bass drum or whatever he was doing created. A different a difference in the sound and it was true for the ramones in that kind of way okay wicked Ramo wicked ramon in the comments says there was a big rift between tommy and the band after road to ruin came out because johnny felt they had compromised the sound to get airplay under tommy's guidance and they didn't get it well, I mean, Road to Ruin's a masterpiece album anyway. So, you know, who cares? Airplay or not, who cares? But I, I I, still think there was a little bit more to it than that. But that sounds, I mean, that sounds like, that makes sense. Just imagine Johnny, just imagine Johnny works, have breakfast at his house with Eddie Vedder and Kurt. <laughs> so Johnny having breakfast at his house with Eddie Vedder and Kirk Hammett. That would be crazy. It'd be a crazy breakfast. 
Wicked Ramon says, that's why Johnny and Dee Dee are so critical of Tommy super unfairly at the end of the, in the end of the century documentary. Yeah. I mean, they were all, they were all on each other by that point. They were all over each other at the end. I mean, they just, ugh, they went in on each other. Um, they eventually made up, I guess, because Tommy worked on too tough to die as for taco tunes. That was from the beginning because you can see the listing for it on the first album. Okay. Did not realize that. So really we could just go to taco tunes to find out everything. And Tony by wait, what? Wait, so wait, so John Bon Jovi is somehow related to this Tony guy, but their names are not quite, I, I don't know. Uh, I always thought Tommy would look good playing drums in ACDC. Well, that would be interesting. There's a lot of good pictures of the Ramones recording the first album. For whatever reason, there's not a lot of pictures of the Ramones in the studio. Kind of the same deal with the Misfits, to be honest. There is no pictures of the Misfits in the studio. Barely any, at least that have been publicly released. There might They might exist. They just They have never seen the light of day. There's some stuff for Static Age. That's about it. Um, Jerry does a pretty good job in that tell-all interview describing the recording situation for Earth AD. It's pretty rad how they recorded live in the studio while Glenn was uh, sleeping, allegedly. Also, Tommy had never played drums before the Ramones, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, he, he says that in the interview, too. He played guitar in a band called... Uh, Butch with Monty, and there's all, and he also, right, that was the signed band, right? And then also Tangerine something. Um, yeah, Road to Ruin's awesome. Road to Ruin features a song called Bad Brain, which, when sped up, almost sounds like Attitude by the Bad Brains, who took their name from said record. And a, a, we did a whole video on this. Allegedly, we sped it up, actually. We listened back. Go listen, go watch the bad brain, how the bad brains got their name from Road to Ruin. Really great episode we did on this channel. All right, I'm mo moving on, moving on. Uh, I take it your skill, my playing improved, right? Um, Leave Home was done, mixed in various studios, Le Studio in Quebec, Canada, track records in DC, and I think somewhere in New York. Can you talk about the studios that were used for each album of the Ramones that you worked on and what? And what appealed about them? We used many studios for this recording because of the low budget. We got a good deal. We got good deals at these fine studios, but for limited time. So we had to finish up and move. So we got to Tony's single engine private plane, and we would fly from Washington to Quebec from studio to studio. It was kind of funny. We flew from New Jersey to Washington where we mixed half the album on a nice Nev console. Then we flew up to Montreal and mixed the other half on a large trident. The first album was done at Radio City Music Hall in New York City at a place called Plaza Sound. We had a 3M16 track and an API console. The studio was a big room. It was originally an NBC radio studio from the Golden Age. It was a beautiful Art Deco room with a Wurlitzer pipe organ built in. The second album was recorded at a place called Sundragon, which had custom console made by Roger Meyer. The EQ section was like a miniature uh, Paltex that had separate boost and intuition controls. They had one of the first Super 16 tracks in the United States. It was a very nice, cozy studio. 
The third album, Rocket to Russia, was recorded at Media Sound, where we had a Nev console. It was a huge room, a converted church, big high ceilings, so we were able to get a good drum sound, especially on the next album, Road to Ruin, which was also recorded there. Rocket to Russia was the first album to be mixed at the famous Power Station recording studio. The studio was designed and built by Tony and Ed Stasium. The design of the studio was one of the most influential of the era. The studio was still under construction, and we did not have an EMT plate. So we had to set up a live echo chamber using a stairway with a JBL speaker and a U87 setup. So when they say an, a live echo chamber, so before you had, I guess, more modern versions of, of analog of analog stuff, right? You would actually have a giant resonating chamber. Like that's what they had at Abbey Road Studios. The sound would go into the chamber, the big echo chamber, right? And come out. And that's how you would get the analog sounding thing. Like you'd have to, it's like doing in camera special effects. Know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, so it's crazy. This is kind of my first time commenting on a live stream. I've watched for a while, but never catch the show live. I've, Rewatched most of the evil live show for the past two years. So, wow. Well, listen, we're glad to have you and you're, you're always welcome to comment anytime you want. Um, you know, the problem with these comments is that the show ends up being 18 hours long, but it's, it's always fun to have people and have people contribute and whatnot. So you definitely should show up more. You're always welcome to talk Ramones and, and, and hang out and whatnot. Um, who's Don Fury. I don't know who that is. It's funny because Power Station Studio is now owned by a New York City college and is used by them for their music production classes. Would love to visit someday. Hmm. Uh, so the, the live echo chamber sounded pretty good. We had a Nev console and a 24 Poltec EQs and a huge wooden rack, one for each channel. Tony had them custom made by a retired manufacturer. Tony hated running out of Poltex. Uh, the recorders were a 3M 24 track and a Studer 2 track for monitoring. We used an Altec 604 ES, which I love and still miss. For near fields, we used the JBL 100s, which Ed loved, but I hated. How long did you work on doing the vocals on this record? We would do vocals for this album fairly quickly. We would put it down and immediately double track it. Joey was very good at double tracking. Joey on the early records was fairly easy to work with. Later, he became pickier, and we would spend a lot of time on vocals do doing composites and such. So a few things right off the, right off the bat. The um the the double what is double tracking? Double tracking is sort of invented by the a necessity of the Beatles in the 60s, I believe uh in 1965 or 1966. And basically what it is is uh, when you're thickening your vocals, when you're singing, you could sing a song like Labada Me, Labada Me. I'm a, t a D D D did a job on me. Now I am a real. So, right. We, we recorded that onto a track, but then you want it to sound the signal, the, 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 the vocals to sound thicker and stronger. So what you're going to do, 
is you're going to record it again. So you put on your headphones, you play back what you just recorded and you sing the same thing again. D D D did a job on me. And if you listen to certain misfit songs, when Glenn will double track his vocals, he'll delay it slightly or he'll sing it differently. Like on devil's uh, whorehouse for the plan nine version of walk among us. And he's basically sort of not double. He's anti double tracking. And it creates this really, really cool layering of his vocals, which are sort of all over the place. Um, hey, Jesus, I, I did not get that picture of Billy Rath. Uh, don't send me anything on Messenger. Messenger is not a good way to contact me ever. You want to send me something? Send it to the email, okay? I sporadically check any of the messages. Well, I sporadically check email, but it's much easier to send me stuff via email. Do not send stuff to Messenger. It gets put in the on other folders. People message me all the time or they, or they complain that I don't check the messages and then I see that these messages build up. It takes me so much time to go through them and answer them all. It's bet. Please just send me email. Video business media gmail.com. If you got something you want to send me, send it to me there, please. That, sorry, Jesus. I didn't get your thing. You got to send that. That's where you got to send it to you, to me. I love Billy, Billy, Billy. I consider Billy a friend at the end, um, at the end of his life. Chainsaw by the Ramones has been on repeat for me lately. Great song. Great, great, great song. But um, anyway, as I was saying, so you can double track the vocals. You can get them thicker. So then what you another way to do it is you can sort of do it in an auto way where you just sing it once and then you duplicate it and then you delay it by like a fraction of a second and you get this slight echo effect that sounds like two people are singing it and it keeps it very thick. You know, people have requested that I do a Gigi Allen show, Michael, and you know, I've thought about it. I really need a good anchor article. I could talk about Gigi for sure, but I need a good article. Uh, you know, that's another thing you guys can do. If there's an article that you really want me to cover on the show, send it to me. Send it to me. I'll I'll scope it out. I don't like to read them because I like to do it live and be like surprised. So like you got that's what you got to do. You got that's how you got to do it. Otherwise, it's not going to work out. Um. So that's what he means when he says double track. And then the other thing, he talks about composites and composites when you take one track and another track, just like Sgt. Pepper, sorry, Strawberry Fields Forever, uh, which were two different tempos, by the way. And John Lennon liked one the, the beginning of one version and the ending of another version. And he requested that both be composited together. Frankenstein these two together despite the fact that they're different temples and they managed to do it they figured out how to do it sublime stream 2 I want to do a special sublime video how about that I have all this material and kind of like the 1979 thing I kind of want to do something for sublime like that but it's just listen I got so many spinning plates I'm really diving deep on the misfits documentary now and I just, I, I can't keep spreading myself so thin. You know, the problem is though, if I was doing this like full time, like full, full time, like actually getting paid full time, like the amount, the, the, you think I put out a lot of stuff now, the amount of stuff, the quality, it would just be so much better. 
but I just ugh, can't do it. Can't do it yet. Can't do it yet. Um, moving on. Rocket to Russia. Sounds like there are somewhat buried acoustic guitars going along with the elect electrics, which adds a very nice touch and a light contrast and texture to the sound. Also, the vocals are low in the mix. We used acoustic guitars on the more country and Western type songs. We felt that that was appropriate. We rented a Martin D28 to do those. It was interesting watching Johnny strumming away on it. We spent a little more time mixing Rocket to Russia and a little bit more time to blend the vocals to my liking. Uh, what do you suggest to obtain a good raw heavy guitar sound? Tommy says, turn the amp all the way up. No effects. Put a close mic and a far mic and blend. It also helps to have Johnny Ramone playing guitar. He used a hot single coil Mazrite that had a lot to do with his sound as well as his downstroke technique. Dude, we already put up the statue in Lodi. It wasn't quite what we were expecting it to be, but it exists. It's there. It is there. Go watch that video. We did a whole video about it last. I think that was last November. It's awesome. Uh, back to Road to Ruin. What direction were you aiming at for this record? I noticed some pop song elements going on. I noticed that there are really no backing vocals going on. Just Joey. I guess that's kind of what Wicked Ramon is talking about, too, about the pop stuff. Road to Ruin was, I mean, look, you have songs like Pins and Needles and Questioningly. I mean, quite clearly, they're looking for airplay, right? Um, Road to Ruin was the first record where I was just the producer. They gave me a lot of freedom because I did not need to play drums. I could concentrate totally on the production and work with Mark, allowing uh, uh, and working with Mark allowed us to develop a new drum sound. It was a different type of record. It was a darker record. We were sort of going for a more mainstream sound. We were experimenting with putting in more guitars. Ed Stasium and I did some guitar overdubs for it. On one song, we did a backward guitar solo. How many? How much time was spent on getting drum sounds on their first on those first few albums? How confident were you at this very early stage in your career as a producer, musician, and the band's feelings overall? I certainly was not happy with the drum sound on the first album, but we had no time, and I was placed in a booth a mile away from the control room. It was sort of a desperate situation. The engineer did not know what to make of us. They thought we were a bunch of hooligans. I tried to explain to them that I was an engineer myself, but they did not take to my recommendations. And we had no time. As far as how much time was spent on getting the drum sound, none. And later on, I found out that the keypexed gated that they keypexed gated everything. The keypex was just invented, and these guys were going crazy with it. For the other albums, we had the luxury of actually getting a drum sound. What do they mean when they say getting a drum sound? I mean, it's like the way you mic and place the drums, and you know, you see it when they're doing live. I guess maybe when they're doing live sound checks if you're touring with your band and you watch them hit the drum over and over and over and over again until they get the tone just the way that they like it they have the gain just the way that they like it and just like get the boom 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 um 
Wow, that is cool. Wicked says there's a cool picture out there of Marky watching Tommy from the backstage at one of Tommy's last shows. One of Tommy's last shows is actually, it, it was in early 1978, and it was captured. I don't think Marky was the drummer yet. It was captured. Uh, there was, I think, Bomp put it out. Great recording. Um, it was just after they did It's Alive. So that's what they mean when they say getting a drum sound. I think I was very confident about the Ramones. I knew that we were the most innovative and promising band around. I just wish more people had realized that at the time I was having a great time producing the records. I was in my element, having total creative control after the basic tracks were laid down and the vocals done. I was on my own with only Ed or Tony there. Um, the Ramones never, the Ramones never stepped into the studio until the finished product was ready to be played. It was creative heaven. As, as for my drumming, is as far as my drumming is concerned, I just played the parts that I felt would help us sound good. The style I played was the style I liked. I was influenced by the drumming of Al Jackson of Stack Records and Charlie Watts of the Stones. A simple, solid beat. I was also going for a flowing feel to drive the music forward without bogging it down. Hmm. Um, how about the song Go uh, Go Mental? Uh, I noticed some interesting effects going on that give it a nice storytelling dramatic effect. Uh, go mental. Uh, go mental. Do 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 do. I think that's how that goes. We use genuine tape flanging on Gold Mental. We also use the effect on other songs. There was no other way of getting effects like that in those days. Everything was done using two tape recorders synced up. You locked up two tape machines and you vary the speed of one. You can also get an automatic double tracking by the same math method, but at a longer delay. This gave you a much fatter effect than you get with digital devices nowadays. We would try to keep things tasteful and not use too many effects. We use them when we feel that they added something to what we were trying to say. Do you prefer double tracking to doing choruses with additional people at once and so on? The basic tracks were laid down with the full rhythm section, and then we would use overdubbing techniques for lines and effects. The background vocals would be done with a group of people. The demos for Too Tough to Die, who played on those? For Too Tough to Die, we just went into the studio and I pretty much recorded them live. I set up the mics in a special way with the drums in the open room facing the band with the room mics picking up all the instruments. Wow. Ed was not available for those sessions, so I did them all by myself. Later, he came in and did four songs with me. Those four are the ones with Joey singing. And as you know, you also have Dee Dee chiming in with, In this vacation. And this vacation, and uh, of course, Warthog, one of the finest Ramones tracks. Here, I'm putting the link in the uh, the link to this article in the chat for anybody who wants to share it with their friends. There you go. There it is. Enjoy. Um, <laughs> on Too Tough to Die, on the Too Tough to Die record, did Richie Marky's temporary replacement for almost four years do vocals on the demos 
For those demos, Dee Dee would do vocals for his songs and Richie would do the vocals for his and Joey's songs. Most of the songs on the album are by Dee Dee. And what about Dave Stewart and his involvement? The Ramones manager, Gary uh, Kerfurst, brought in Dave Stewart. Kerfurst also managed the Eurythmics. Stewart was brought in on the premise of giving the Ramones a hit record, and thus he co-produced one song with us. The great It's Alive record. Was this a full-on true live recording, or were there any fixing going on post-production-wise? A quick note about about live record live records a lot of live records are not live at all especially live loco is not live at all kiss alive all of the kiss alive records not live records usually what they would do sometimes and that's not true i mean there are definitely live records live records obviously do exist but a lot of the times a live record is a manufacturer is is manufactured in the studio to sound live um so what you get is sometimes in the early days or in the seventies, when records were really like polished and overly produced, you would, I mean, if it was a punk record live, it was probably played live in the room. Um, if it was like somebody like kiss or the Ramones or anybody else, what they would do is they would record the, dr- the drums would be recorded live, right? Maybe the guitars and then everything else, Everything they would redo it in the studio on top of that live drum track. That's how you would build it up. And scandalously, I believe I know Loco Live for sure, but apparently it's alive, which is considered to be one of the finest, the, the finest Ramones live recordings, is not live at all and is totally manufactured in the studio. And I don't know. We're gonna see right now. We're gonna find out right now. Ready? For It's Alive, we mic'd up everything on stage as we would in the studio, but without the uh, baffling. The drums are 100% real. We mix the songs in a marathon session with no interruptions, which helps great with the feel of the record. So hear that. He doesn't say that. He just says the drums are 100% original. Everything else is redone in the studio, which makes sense because when you look at the concerts from where they were recording It's Alive and stuff, and you see Dee Dee jumping around with that bass and just making all sorts of, you'd imagine he's not real. I mean, he's making all sorts of mistakes. There's no way it sounds that pristine the way it does on It's Alive. So there you go, folks. There it is uh, on record. It's Alive is, it's just the drums. That's it. The front cover photo of the album shows the mic, the mic, uh, sorry, the front cover photo. Uh, blah, blah, I can't talk. The front cover photo of the album shows the miking of the drum kit. There must be 20 microphones arrayed around that thing. We were using one set of mics for the house and one set for recording. I had just left the band and they wanted to promote a record with their new drummer, which was Road to Ruin. I don't think they realized what a great record it's alive was later on you produced the the replacements time record tim record tim was a wonderful experience for me i love working on that record it was uh going for something unique and i think we were really able to come up with an original sounding record i had heard alex chilton was supposed to produce tim but he was canned at the last minute by sire Alex Chilton of Big Star fame was originally supposed to produce the Tim album, but I just don't know what happened. The group and their manager, Peter Jep- Jespersen, were big fans of Chilton. 
How about dealing with people, especially on the Tim record? Bob Stinson was going through a drinking stint. It was a fascinating working with Bob Stinson because I hardly ever saw him. Throughout six weeks, I was in Minneapolis working on the record. I saw him a total of three times. I think he only came to the studio once, so we had to record all of his parts in one exciting and convoluted day, and then he was gone. I loved working with him. He was like a man possessed. He would get these cascades of sound coming out of his instrument and amp. He was a natural player who played a totally out of his head. We recorded everything he played and used his parts when they fit well. It was a one, it was wonderful working with a talent like Paul Westerberg. You just placed a mic in front of him and great things happen. One of my priorities was keeping them sober. Tim had been their most sober album. They helped give it helped to give them a new dimension. I got along well with all of them, including Bob. I'm go I'm good at working with people like that. I try to get into their world and I try to snap them out of it a bit. Uh, bring them to a new reality where we combine their vision with my vision. I quite often worked with eccentric people. I seem to be able to have a rapport with them. That's cool. Um, the bass seemed to sound direct as in like, I guess, recorded direct to the board. If we used more of the direct, it was because it probably sounded better. Tommy Stinson was using a Rickerbacker bass and some weird amp. I don't remember. Uh, I prefer Fender basses for recording, but wanted him to be comfortable. It was important to me to make them as comfortable as I could. I wanted them to have fun and relax. I also wanted them to have a unique sound that Rick and, and uh, that Rick helped. Um, why do you think the band had asked you to do this record? The band had asked me to do this record because they wanted someone that they could trust on a major label. They were concerned about selling out. They were also fans of my work. There also seems to be a preference to the drums in the mix. The drums are not that loud. <clears throat> I need my fake cigarette right now. The drums are not that loud when one compares them to other rock albums of that era. As a matter of fact, I was careful not to join the crowd with that explosive Phil Collins sound that everyone else was using at that time. I did not know. I did not want that record to sound dated in the future. I like having drums well-balanced as I do everything else. We recorded and mixed the whole project on a Neotech counts console. It did not have enough channels to mix with, so I had to add a small soundcraft board as an extension to put the effects through. You, you did Red Cross Neurotics record. Any impressions? The kind of It's kind of psychedelic and a regression from the smooth, slick production styles that you're kind of got into. The Red Cross album was a lot of fun. It was very low budget project. We did it quickly. We did it in several studios, all on Trident councils. It was a psychedelic album because the band was into the late 60s and loved the Beatles and Sonny and Cher. I just got in their playpen and had a good time combining their vision with mine. Tommy seems to have a very, you know, set answer, uh, combining your, your vision with my vision, and that's it, right? What were the in-studio setups like? The basic tracks were recorded in a large room for drums and the bass and the guitars were isolated. They got good deals at studios so we could keep the budget down. And of course, we worked fast. The overdubs were mainly the vocals and some guitar and percussion and everything else was recorded live during the basic sessions. It was fun to uh, record mix as the band was creative and unique. It was a pleasant experience all around. 
Uh, what did you think of the latter day Ramones records? Boy, that is a great question. And, and that's the type of stuff that I really want to hear in an interview like this. It's funny. I didn't really care about the replacements. No offense. I just not never, I never really got into them. You know, I understand their place and why people love them and everything. But, uh, and so I was thinking about closing this article at once we got to the replacement stuff. I'm really glad I didn't, cause I want to hear what he says here about those latter day Ramones records. And suddenly that's when, you know, Didi is gone now. And, and Marky starts to have more of a say of what's going on in the studio. And, if you ever hear Marky talking about how they would record Ramones records and from the ground up, it's uh, interesting. Uh, Tommy says, I think all the Ramones albums are good. Certainly the songwriting is always there. The production varies from album to album, some more appropriate than others. My favorite Ramones album is Rocket to Russia, followed by the first album. Road to Ruin is a sentimental favorite because we put a lot of work into it and we came up with a great sounding recording. Many producers were influenced by our work on that one and and they went on to create platinums uh platinum albums for other artists using our techniques <laughs> one has to be aware of that era these records come from to realize how innovative and powerful they were for their time so what are you up to as of late this is 2005 right now i'm working on a bluegrass and old time music influence endeavor called uncle monk it is mostly acoustic with a little bit of twangy electric guitar thrown in. I've been doing that for a little while now. I am also working as a musical director for a musical, Gabba Gabba Hey, based on the Ramon songs, which premiered in Australia this past summer, and we were hoping to bring it to America in 2005. I don't know if I, I'm not familiar with that. It's really awesome that they did that. Any producers and engineers out there that you admire work-wise? My favorite producers offhand are Phil Spector, George Martin, Trevor Horn, Tom Lord Angle, Alge, Roy Thomas Baker, and Michael Chapman. What do you think of current recording technology? Do you plan? Do you play around with it as much? I think modern technology is fantastic. It's opening up a whole new world. One just has to learn to get it to sound good. It always allows people to make records that they would not have had a chance to. Did Tommy Ramone ever have kids? As far as I know, the four original Ramones never had any children i believe that there is no descendants for any of the ramones except for cj i think cj is the only ramon who had kids I'm trying to think i don't think tommy had kids uh and no illegitimate or you know sort of long lost children have come come to light so who knows um what do you think is essential is the essential basis for a decent genuine punk record punk um, punk rock records should just be about feel. It has to be mic'd well, and it should sound as live as possible. And last but not least, are you still into producing and recording? He says, I have recorded some local and up and coming New York bands, but only in my spare time. I'm always keeping my ears open. And if I have the time and if an artist strikes my interest, then I would consider working with them, but they would have to be innovative and interesting to get me excited. I listen to all kinds of music, but I love old time music. It is the closest thing to the pure spirit of punk rock. It is the same wild abandon and feel. I hope to hear the next great artist. I consider record producing a great art and i am very happy to have been allowed the chance to participate i am also grateful that some of the records i have been involved with are considered classics classic isn't the word tommy i mean legendary godlike is more the word right 
Yeah, how about that? It's just CJ. Just CJ's the guy, only guy who had children. Hmm. You're right. The the iconic Let It Be house, uh, where they where the replacements uh, did the photo album. I, you know, I, again, like no, no offense, to the replacements or do you, man? I just I never. They just never. Always over my head. I just didn't. didn't never got it. Never ever got it, man. Um, those songs are great and recorded. To my knowledge, and yes, Didi seldom played correctly live. He hit pretty much every other note instead of all eighth notes like Johnny. Yeah, but you want to know something? Um, but look at the way that CJ of that that Didi plays, like that just that wild abandoned flopping around. It still works, man. It still works, despite the fact that it's just it's so uh it's so all over the place. You know, yes, Rue, I agree. Revolutionary. So that's it for our show. This is the. I just like the first three albums. They lost their punk edge. I mean, listen, really, any album before Too Duff to Die is like is awesome in some way, shape or form. The four records that are immaculate to me that I can listen top to bottom without like skipping anything are the first four records and it's alive of course um after that it starts to get patchy and post too tough to die it gets really patchy but you can find something great through every single like ramones album man you, you could find oh <laughs> sorry so sorry uh 77 to 83 said he was they were talking about the remote uh, replacements. My bad. My bad. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oops. Uh, so yeah, that's it. This is the longest show we've done in two months. I think roughly it's an hour and 33 minutes and not intend to try to keep the show shorter because I think people will, if I like stick to around an hour, people will, you know, watch more than maybe, you know, the, I feel like I have a core audience that will watch through the streams or most of the stream or, you know, a large percentage of the stream, but I feel like I'm alienating potentially more viewers who might want shorter streams. So, and now with those, listen, don't get mad at me with that YouTube short stuff going on. I'm going to be doing a lot of those, a lot of commentary stuff. So keep your eyes peeled. Animal boy. We're out of who, meow, 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 meow. Go little Camaro, go. Ooh, wow, wow, Ooh, wow, wow. That was my ringtone for a while. Go, little Camaro, go. Or how about bop till you drop, bop till you drop. No matter what, you just can't stop. Bop till you drop. But I, I love go, little Camaro, go is so great. Yeah, you could find at least one good song on every Ramones album, at least the, the later ones. I mean, listen, uh, my brain is hanging upside down. That is one of their greatest songs ever, and that came out on uh, I think that was Brain Drain, maybe, and Pet Cemetery too. I mean, uh, friggin' uh, the Crusher, which is originally a Dee Dee King song. The Crusher is a phenomenal song that came out on Audios Amigos. So. <laughs> Sorry, I'm really sniffling tonight. I'm all congested. Um, that's it, guys. If you enjoyed, thanks again, Johnny Bullet, for the coffee. If anybody else enjoyed the stream, feel free to buy a coffee. 
Check out the Patreon, all sorts of stuff. I'm going to lead you out with the Patreon shuffle here. That's what we're going to start calling this. We say peace and hair grease, right? And then we're going to do the Patreon shuffle. The Patreon shuffle. You want to see my feature like film? Go to the Patreon shuffle. You want to see my interview with Marky Ramon? Go to and, a, and a, the story of how we interviewed him. The Patreon shuffle. The Patreon shuffle. Hey, guys. What's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it going to be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time, uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk, and I never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so right now, I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers, and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.